Hello and welcome to the podcast of Vineyard Church here in Maryville, Tennessee. We post our Sunday messages here each week, as well as our conversations episodes, which include interviews, special announcements, and in-depth teaching. You can visit vineyardchurch.us to learn more about us or to access the audio archive. You can also subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Apple, or Google Podcasts. And now, here's the episode. All right. Who knows what CAPTCHA stands for? Yeah, I didn't think so. Okay. Uh, CAPTCHA stands for completely automated public Turing test to tell computers and humans apart. It's kind of a forced acronym. <laughs> like they forced it just, uh, just a little bit. But at, at the heart of this uh, weird system that we've all sort of had to wrestle with um, is trying to make sure uh, what's real and what isn't. Trying to delineate between what's a human and what's a robot, um, what's human and what's just pretending to be a real and actual human. All right, that's how captures work. Um, similar deal actually going on in this book that we've been studying, Galatians. Uh, Paul's letter to the Galatians is kind of a captcha in a real way. It's trying to help us understand what does a real Jesus person look like? How do we know what's real and what's false? What's a phony one? What's, what's, what's the genuine article? What's just pretending to be? Um, how do you know who's part of the family? And who isn't part of the family. Uh, that's really what's going on. And the reason why they need to do this is because there's a problem group. We've been talking about them a lot. Um, the Judaizers, right? And um, uh, they're confusing things. And um, they say that the CAPTCHA test to know whether or not you're in the real Jesus family and you're a real Jesus person is circumcision. And by circumcision, they also kind of mean that as a shorthand for keeping all of the Mosaic law in the Old Testament. And Paul is very, very insistent. That's the wrong test. That's the wrong kind of captcha. Okay, but, and this is where it becomes really important for us, if that's the wrong sort of test of authenticity, then what's the right test of authenticity? Um, That's really what this whole letter is about. And today's text is where Paul... um, starts really digging into what the right kind of test is to know whether or not we are real, genuine Jesus people. So, that's where we're headed. Jesus, uh, Jesus. Galatians chapter 2. We'll look at just verse 15 here. (laughs) Paul says, You and I are Jews by birth, not sinners, like the Gentiles. You ever read stuff in the Bible and be like, No, 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 no. You can't say it like that. That's not... That's not woke. That's offensive. I don't, I don't like that, you know? And he seems like he's saying something really bad about the Gentiles. And it's like, if you remember from last week, he was just doing this really pretty Herculean effort in order to defend the Gentiles. That was verses 11 to 14. We get to verse 15. It sounds like he's saying something pretty awful about the Gentiles. Um, that's the knee-jerk reaction. That's what we get at first glance. But just hold up before you draw that conclusion. Um, this reads to us like, like it's a, a racial or ethnic distinction. Maybe it's even a racial or ethnic slur. Um, to be clear, that is not at all, not even a little bit, what's going on here. 
Uh, we read this again at first glance and assume that Paul's saying, Jews good, Gentiles bad. Um, it's not what's going on. Paul was incredibly aware of the brokenness of all people. All people. Um, and if you're unclear about that, just read the book of Romans. That he makes it very, very clear. Um, for context, in just a couple of verses, uh, here he's talking about the Gentiles. A couple of verses, um, he's going to talk about the Jews, and he calls the Jews, of which he is, you know, he is Jew. He is a Jew. Um, he calls them lawbreakers. And so here Gentiles are called sinners, and coming up, Jews are called lawbreakers. And believe it or not, lawbreaker doesn't sound quite as, maybe as heavy or dark to us, uh, but that's a stronger, more convicting term. Um, and that's based around the fact that Gentiles did not have access to the law of God. So what that means is they essentially had no choice uh, but to be sinners. In other words, they have an excuse to be sinners. Um, but the Jews have the law. They are aware of God's values. Um, and so what that means, they are lawbreakers by choice. So, again, at first glance, looks like he's taking a shot at the Gentiles. In reality, this is a, an, a continuation of his last uh, few verses, which is a statement in support of the Gentiles. I just want to make sure we're clear about that. Paul's saying, we sin. Um, they sin, but actually we know better, and we're more accountable because of it. Now, verse 16 kind of gets us into the teeth of the discussion here. Try to follow along. It's very wordy. Yet we know that a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law. And we have believed in Jesus Christ so that we may be made right with God because of our faith in Christ not because we have obeyed the law. Did you notice that he just repeated himself? He just said it, and then he was like, you know what, I'm not sure you got it. People don't always pay great attention. I'm going to say it again, and he just repeats himself. Then he adds this, for no one will ever be made right with God by obeying the law. We just gave you a third time on that one, just in case you still weren't paying attention. I can tell Paul's a preacher. So he's repeating it to make sure we get it. Now, uh, you may have noticed, and I'm sure you did, I'm sure you did, um, you're probably wondering right now, we're reading from the NLT today, but we've been reading from CSB all along. Good job by you. I know, I'm good, glad you noticed that. Um, the reason why I'm reading from NLT today is uh, I prefer the way the NLT translates uh, the Greek word dikaio, and that is translated here, made right with God. Um, most translations say justified, and justified is a great word. Actually, it's, it has a, in some ways, it's probably a better translation. Um, but um, when it says made right with God, it's basically giving us the definition for what it means to be justified, which means there's one less technical theological term for us to work through. Because again, this is it's hard to keep these all clear and straight. There's like it reads a little bit like word salad if we aren't kind of intentional um, with all the terminology. And this idea of being made right with God is a really big deal to Paul. It's a really big theme in this letter. For Paul, being made right with God kind of is, it's the captcha. Have you been made right with God? Have you been justified? Okay, well, how does that happen? And what does that look like? And that's where Paul here is beginning uh, to explain. So we're, look at verse 16 uh, again here and highlight a couple of words. Verse 16, yet we know that a person is made right with God by faith. That's the key, faith in Jesus Christ. 
not obeying the law. And we have believed in Jesus Christ. That's another key, belief. So that we might be made right with God because of our faith in Christ. So faith and belief. We are made right with God by faith and belief. Now, next week, we're going to focus on those two words, faith and belief. And you're going to bring your friends, and we're going to tell them how to have life with Jesus through faith and belief. So that's very important. Um, But that's not what we're going to focus in on today. Today, we're going to zero in on what Paul says three times, absolutely will not make us right with God, which is obeying the law. Um, The law is shorthand for a lot of things. This whole collection of laws uh, that govern uh, the people of God and their relationship to God, particularly the Hebrews. It's called the Torah. This was given to Moses on Mount Sinai. If you're a church kid, you know all the stories. If you're not, that's okay. Um, what we're going to do here, this actually brings up a really big discussion and a really hotly, sort of, sort of a fierce theological debate. And what we're just going to peer into it for a second here, okay? Um, but not, di- not dive too deeply at all. But the debate is, how is it, that we're supposed to approach as Christians today, how are we supposed to approach the Old Testament law? How are we supposed to think about the Torah, the law of Moses that was given to him on Mount Sinai? All right, so in order to, I'm going to put this way too simply, but to put it way too simply, um, the law had two jobs, okay? So I'll explain this to you. I want you to, I want you to really kind of lean in at this point because there, there are a lot of Christians who are confused that go, how are we supposed to think about the laws of the Old Testament? What's the, why do we keep some of them, but not all of them? Why, why, is it, why do some of them, it would be silly for us to try to obey all those laws, and then other those, and others it would be just full on evil if we don't obey those laws? How are we supposed to keep them distinct? How do we, even, how do we know what's up? So it's a big question. Okay, the law did two things. I'm going to oversimplify it, but it's fine. Number one, it bonded Israel to God. Okay? You can think of it as a charter. All right, think about what a charter is and how it operates. This was, this was the document that established the relationship between God and his people, the Israelites. I will be your God, you will be my people, and this is our charter. This is the terms of the agreement. This is what it's going to look like for you to be my people. Okay? The law of Moses was the captcha for the Hebrews. It's how they knew that they were God's people. And then, when Jesus came, he made salvation available to everyone, not just the Hebrews, but to all. And then Jesus became the glue that bonded Christians to one another and bonded Christians to God. So Jesus replaces the law and he becomes the capture. He becomes the charter. He becomes the definition of, of the terms of the arrangement. Okay? That's the first thing that the law did. The second thing that the law did is it revealed God's values, God's, God's moral principles. Okay? This, it's most important to me that you as my people live your life in this way. This is how I want you to be. So that first part where the law is the charter, that goes away. Because by design, that gets replaced by Jesus. Does this make sense? No. Okay. Um, I'll keep talking then. This is, this is why Jesus said he didn't come to abolish the law but to fulfill it. 
So let me read you a quote. This is N.T. Wright. The Torah, the law of Moses, is given for a specific period of time and is then set aside, not because it was a bad thing, now happily abolished, but because it was a good thing whose purpose had now been accomplished. It was the placeholder that led to Jesus who would be the glue that then bonded us together and defines our relationship with the Father. That was the first part of what the law did and was replaced by Jesus. The second part of what the law did, the part about revealing God's priorities, his values for how we live our lives, that doesn't go anywhere because God's values don't change. Right and wrong don't change. God's moral sensibilities have never shifted and they never will. And so the moral laws stay in effect. That's why we still look to the Old Testament for direction for how we can live our lives. This is why we look at things like the Ten Commandments and why the Ten Commandments remain in full effect for us today. That was God's values communicated to us. And that's also why things like dietary restrictions, those are no longer valid because those were laws of distinction that set the terms of the agreement and were later replaced by Jesus. Okay? There, there are laws, for example, that say you're not supposed to wear mixed fabrics, more than one kind of fabric at the same time. You're all breaking it right now. you got a polycotton blend, you're out. You're breaking the law. So we go, wait a minute, why do we not... Why do we not still do that? Why is that not still in force? It's not in force because that was the terms that bonded Israel to God. And now Jesus is what bonds Israel and believers to God. And the moral laws about how we behave, those are God's values. They don't change. It's important to me that you understand that. So can I get an obligatory nod? Great, and some yeses to go along with it. And some, and some, okay, Aaron, okay, okay. So I want you to think about this. Try to put yourself into the shoes of Jewish Christians, okay? Their whole life has really been governed by keeping a set of laws, moral laws, and then also these laws of distinction that set them apart from other nations as God's people. And then Jesus comes along, and it's beautiful and good and life-giving. But part of that is, hey, some of these laws are no longer in effect, no longer applicable to you. Well, if, if you, again, if you really put yourself in their shoes, you can see how difficult that's going to be. It sounds like, okay, great, here's some stuff I don't have to do anymore. Bacon. Bacon. Okay, I get it. How can, you, how can you not be happy about bacon? I understand. But for them, this was... It was a really hard transition for them to make, even though it was giving them more and more freedom. They're thinking, wait a minute, if, if Jesus, like, it would be really difficult to live your life by a whole set of laws, then put some of them aside, and then still feel like you're okay with God. That would be scary. If Jesus made it so that we don't have to keep all of the law, well... What if we're wrong about that? Like, what if that's just not the right interpretation? And then aren't we just sinning in the name of Jesus? What does that mean for us? That's where their minds were going. So Paul addresses that next, verse 17 on through verse 20, I think we'll read now. But suppose, this is what Paul's saying, suppose we seek to be made right with God through faith in Christ, and then we are found guilty because we have abandoned the law. Would that mean Christ has led us into sin? Are we just sinning in Jesus' name now? 
Absolutely not. Rather, I am a sinner. If I rebuild the old system of law, I already tore down. For when I tried to keep the law, it condemned me. So it's very strong language. I died to the law. I stopped trying to meet all its requirements so that I might live for God. My old self, it's a really important language, my old self has been crucified with Christ. Okay, if you're a follower of Jesus, this language should be true of you. My old self, it died along with Jesus on the cross. And that actually, that part didn't resurrect. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. I, all my ways of living and all my values, all my, where I was placing all my hope, that is all literally dead. And now I've been reanimated through life with Christ and Him alone. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So in this earthly body, so I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Okay, uh, this goes back to what Paul's been saying all along. This is really the heart of the confusion. He's saying, guys, if you're listening to the Judaizers and you're going back to the law, you're making this really common mistake. You're failing to realize how impactful this Jesus thing is. He changes everything. He doesn't sort of change a few things. He totally transforms everything, including how we approach the law of Moses. It was great, but it was just a shadow of the real thing. And Jesus is the form. He's the real thing. He addresses this in the next chapter. I know we're working our way piece by piece through Galatians here, and we're in chapter 2. We're not supposed to look to chapter 3 yet, but let's sneak a peek into chapter 3 real quick. Galatians 3, parts of 19 and 20. Paul writes this, the law was designed to last only until the coming of the child who was promised. It's Jesus, of course. If the law, is very important, if the law could give us new life, we could be made right with God, or we could justify it, remember that? By obeying it. But, but clearly it wasn't capable of doing that. Because it wasn't designed to do that. It was a placeholder until the one who could really give us life came along. And that, of course, is Jesus. So, this is my weird brain, but I just keep thinking of Frankenstein. Y'all, you know Frankenstein. Um, Paul taught us that um, our sin makes us dead. Okay? It doesn't make us bad. It doesn't make us, you know... God doing this. No, no, no. It makes you dead. Okay? The wages of sin is death. So what we then need is life. We need life because we're dead in our sin. Um, Paul also makes it very clear that only Jesus can give us that life, period. And that the law never actually could. It never really could. In, in the book, Frankenstein, um, the guy, the the wild, weird doctor dude, that's actually Frankenstein. We think of the monster as Frankenstein, or I always did. Um, but it's actually, the monster is Frankenstein's monster. Frankenstein is, you got it. Okay. Frankenstein keeps trying to bring life from death. Breathe life into this dead thing. And even when it does work, it doesn't really work. Right? Because he was trying to give life to a human and he actually gave life to a, a monster, right? And everything's, everything's off. He's weird and creepy. Tried to create a human. He ended up creating a monster. He sort of did it, but not really. And kind of in this contract, that's the law. It, it couldn't quite do it. It was, it was never designed to complete the job of giving life to people. It was only designed 
to point to Jesus, again, a placeholder. And Jesus alone would conquer death. And Christ alone could bring real, lasting, all the way alive life. Not Frankenstein's monster life, but real, genuine life. And that's what Paul's been saying. He's saying, I've actually been given eternal life, the life of the ages. He says, I have, I have died to the law so that I might live for God. Again, verse 20, my old self has been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Paul says, look guys, if you're a Jesus person, you don't need, looking back to the law, you don't need the partially effective, can't really do the trick because it was never intended to do it, life of the law. We died to that. And it's all the way dead and gone now. We don't need the old Frankenstein methods anymore. That's what, he's, that's what he's saying. And what's interesting is, and what he's frustrated about, is these Judaizers are creating doubt in what Christ is really able to do about the real life that he's able to give. And they're running around, this way I picture again my weird brain, they're running around trying to put bolts in the necks of Christians. Trying to give them a, a jolt of not really life but they've already been made 100% alive alive. They don't, they don't need a jolt from the old system. And this is causing confusion, and it's causing the believers to look back to the old law. Um, but looking back to the old law is denying the power of Jesus. Um, it says that God's grace is capacity to forgive you, to restore you, to give you life. It's not really effective, or maybe it's not really effective, so let's hold on to this old idea just in case. And that's how Paul closes the chapter here, verse 21. I do not treat the grace of God as meaningless. He's going, guys, it works. It works. You get all the way alive life from Christ and Christ alone. You don't have to look to any other source. It's not meaningless. It works. We don't look to something that doesn't. He goes on to say, for if keeping the law could make us right with God, then there was no need for Christ to die. It's like, he didn't have to conquer death if we had it through another means, but there is no other means. Okay. Now, let's talk about what the Judaizers are doing here, and then here's where we can start to shift to maybe understanding how it might apply uh, to our own lives. Because maybe some of you are wrestling with whether or not you should be keeping the Old Testament law. Maybe. I, I usually, if people are doing that, they're wondering whether or not it's okay to get a tattoo. That's basically my experience. We're all, we're all in for bacon and mixed fabrics, but the tattoo question, let's wrestle with that for a bit. Anyway. <clears throat> oh, yeah, I was going to say something else about tattoos, but I won't. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to. It's fine. Just get a tattoo that glorifies God, and then just know when you get old and saggy, it's going to be different. All right, moving on. <laughs> it's fine. The laws about the tattoo were about keeping them distinct from pagan rituals where people tattooed them. Okay, no. It's, none of it's in the notes. Okay, here's what's going on. Here's why the Judaizers keep going, ah, maybe we want to hold on to it. Maybe we want to hold on to the law. Here's what's going on. They're just hedging their bets. All right? Just in case Jesus isn't really all he claims to be, just in case he didn't actually transform everything everywhere, period. Just in case, let's hold on to the law in case that's actually really where our best hopes lie. Let's hedge our bets. Okay? 
Um, just in case Jesus isn't the whole thing, I've got this old system to fall back on. Okay. Here's the thing. Hear me. We do not find life with Jesus by keeping him on a list of potential saviors. It's not how it works. We don't find life with Jesus by remaining open to the possibility that he actually is who the Bible says that he is. That doesn't do it. I've said this many times, I'm going to keep saying it probably forever. Ours is not a faith of half measures. If you're halfway in, you're not in. I love you. If you're halfway in, you're not in. I'll put it this way. Faith is not like investing money. It is not wise to diversify. Does that make sense? When we invest money, we go, well, just in case the stock market collapse, I'll have some money over here in this, in this bucket or over here in this bucket. And some of you are like, I have no money. Who does this? Me, me neither. I get it. But there are some. I've heard stories. There's lore of people who have money to put in different places. And they go, I'm going to put it here, 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 and here. Just in case if this one collapses or this one and this one collapses, I've still got this. That's the idea. I'm going to diversify. I'm going to diversify. Okay? That's not how faith in Jesus works. Jesus, I'll talk to the church kids here for a bit. Jesus, you remember, is really clear about this. It's kind of an all or nothing deal. Like, the, the way that Jesus talked about it, it was whoever loses their life for his sake, they're the ones that find it. When Jesus talked about this, he, he said, actually, go sell everything you have and buy the field to get what's there. Remember that, church kids? Everything, sell it all. Put it all, don't diversify it. Put it all right here. Buy the field, everything you've got. Jesus is the way. He said, take up your cross and follow me. On and on we could go. Or we could look at how Paul says it in our text today, verse 20. My old self has been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. All of our hope, all of our trust is in him. That's the offer he makes to us. Again, not like investing money where you put some here, some hope over here, and some hope over there, and some trust in this fund, and some trust in that one. It's not like that. It's more like riding a roller coaster. You sit down, you strap in, and it's all up to God from there. You know that feeling when it's like, it's like, well, too, too late, man. You're in. You're in. Oh, wait, I also want to hold on. Yeah, don't even bother, okay? That belt's going to hold or it ain't going to hold. You've put all your confidence in that. You can't control it. You don't dictate it. That's what it's like to actually put our trust in Jesus. And you might hear that and say, well, that sounds hard and scary. And if that's the way you respond, that's just because you're right about that. It is hard and scary. It is. It's hard and scary to put all your eggs in one basket. It's hard and it is scary to lay it all the line, all on the line and put all of your hope in one thing coming through for you. I want to be clear, though, the alternative is much harder. I mean, you remember from a few weeks back, these, uh, the Judaizers, um, they accused Paul of being afraid and being a people pleaser, and Paul's very clear. He's like, no, actually, they're the ones who are afraid. They're afraid of persecution. They're afraid and 
about how things will go in this life because ultimately they're still holding on to things going well for them in this life. They're afraid of persecution. They're afraid of not pleasing the crowd. The reason why they're afraid is because their hopes are divided. They're, they're, they're hoping in Jesus. They're also hoping in the law of Moses, just in case. They're also hoping that the Romans, that they kind of stay chill about the religious exemption, and that doesn't mess with their life, if you remember that part of the story. They're also putting their faith in the people in and around Galatia, not blaming them for everything that's gone wrong and persecuting them even more. It is scary to put your trust in one thing. I, I would submit to you it's actually much scarier to put your trust in more than one thing. Uh, I've said many times that life with Jesus, as we, as we meet Jesus, we enter the life of the ages, there are these incredible, just deeply fulfilling promises that come with it. Like, life with Jesus in this world, in the here and now, not just the sweet by and by, but in the here and now, it is beautiful and good. And there are these incredible promises that were given in Scripture about the joy of the Spirit and the life of the kingdom. I mean, really incredible stuff. Freedom from slavery to sin. We're, we're overcomers. We're more than overcomers. You get a peace that passes all understanding. That's an incredible promise. He says, in me, Jesus says, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. He promises abundant life, a victorious life. Even in the midst of bad situations and difficult circumstances, there's this picture of thriving, even when things are really, really hard. And on and on we could go. There are all these amazing, beautiful promises that paint this incredible picture of this thriving life with Jesus that is available to Christians, not just in the sweet by and by, but here and now. Those promises are true. They're more true than you could ever dare to believe. But hear me on this. None of those come to people who are only partially buying in. When you diversify your faith, I'm going to put some hope in this. I'm going to put some trust in this. I'm going to bank on this a little bit. I'm also going to invest a little bit in this Jesus idea as well. When that's the mentality, these beautiful promises that are given to people who find life with Jesus, none of them come to fruition. You just, they don't. It doesn't come to people who only partially buy in. It only comes to the people who stake it all on Jesus and really walk with him genuine surrender, real obedience to him as disciples of Christ. That's where all the life-fulfilling, spirit-empowering promises come to life in this reality. The half-measure stuff doesn't bring any of that stuff about. Think of it this way. Picture, uh, picture a sailboat, a big, massive sailboat with a bunch of sails. And if you think to yourself, I want to make sure I catch the wind of Jesus, the wind of the Spirit. And so you set a sail in that direction to catch the wind. And then you think, I also, though, want to hedge my bet. Maybe it's, not, maybe it's also just about being a good person. Well, I'm going to set up another sail in another direction to catch that wind. Or maybe it's just about being better than my neighbor because they're kind of a jerk, you know. I only said that because my neighbor's in the room right now. I thought it would be funny. Okay, or... If so, if so, then okay, then I'll set another cell for that. I just need to be better than that person, you know. I'm also going to put some hope in like maybe there's not really an afterlife. I just need to finish well, so I need to make sure I'm well-funded or I'm well-qualified or I'm well-educated. And you set up all these sails in different directions to catch whatever wind that might blow. Now I'm good. But how does that, what happens? 
you just, you don't go anywhere. You don't go anywhere. You just end up, at best, spinning in circles. Nothing moves you forward when you're diversifying where you place your hope and where you place your trust. But for those who finally, once and for all, put all of their hope and all of their trust in Christ alone, in Christ alone who can give you life, Christ alone, we finally stop hedging our bets and say, I'm going to trust in God, but I'm also going to trust in my own good works, and I'm also going to trust in my family, I'm going to trust in my finances, etc., etc. No, no, no. When you finally, once and for all, say, I'm laying it all on Jesus. I'm setting every sail to catch the wind of the Spirit. Finally, we move. Finally, we stop spinning in circles. And finally, the Spirit of God catches us and carries us forward to places you never thought possible. That's when the life and the joy and the abundant life and the victorious life and the peace that passes all understanding and strength for the storms and all the things actually becomes a reality. If we do the half measure thing and just put some of our trust in Jesus, none of that actually happens for us. And when we do that, when we diversify and we set up sails in all these different directions, and we say, well, wait a minute, life with Jesus is supposed to give me, you know, all this list that we're making, the abundant life and the fullness and the victory and the et cetera, et cetera. I'm not experiencing that. I'm not getting that. I'm not moving anywhere. I'm just spinning around in circles. Then people go, well, then I guess Jesus isn't all he was cracked up to be. I guess he isn't the answer that I was told he would be for my life. And you know what that leads us to do? To just hedge our bets even more. That creates doubt. Christ doesn't do what he said he would do. We put less trust in him. We allow our trust to begin to shift in other things. We diversify our hope. And that only makes it worse. It only makes it worse. And it creates this cycle. You say, that create a cycle. But if we'll just align our sails, put it all on Jesus, we thrive. Does that make sense? Okay, I'll take it. Uh, Jacob's going to come up, I think, help us wrap this up. And what I want to encourage you to do, if you find yourself feeling stuck, if you find yourself saying, I believe in the Jesus stuff, I'm in, man, but that whole abundant life thing, the joy of the Spirit, the victory, the victorious life, I don't know, I'm not, I don't think I'm getting that. Then I would encourage you to pause and consider whether or not you have diversified your hope. Maybe you're putting your hope and trust in Jesus to some extent and some hope and trust in some other stuff as well. And Jesus will help me, but I'm also relying on these other things. That's how addictions get born, relying on other things, putting hope in other things. Um, that, that's how our entire lives get just pulled horribly off track because we start putting our hope in other things and other directives. So, can we just wrestle with this idea? I want to encourage you to break the cycle if that's the one. Refuse to do what the Judaizers were doing. Don't diversify. Don't hedge your bet. Don't put some hope in being a good law keeper and some hope in being well-liked and some hope in your finances and some hope in being educated or qualified or whatever. Just put it all on Jesus. Him and Him alone.
adjust your cells to catch the wind of the Spirit. You have to start, you find so much freedom because you're not chasing all the other things, all the just-in-cases. And you're not then left scrambling and disappointed and afraid. Instead, you're, well, you find real rest in Him because the wind of the Spirit is carrying you along. I want to promise you guys the good stuff, really good stuff, comes in walking with Jesus day by day and hour by hour. That's the good stuff. Nothing less will do. Nothing less.